0: this is andre from the mental elf i'm here with the ceo of id insight that's ruth levine Uh, and ruth's going to give a talk at the conference in a couple of weeks time which is entitled the promises and the pitfalls of co-creation so starting off ruth what what do you mean by co-creation why is it so important
1: yeah of course that's a great question to really define a concept that is often discussed and may be discussed in many different ways, and it means a lot to different people. For me, what co-creation means is kind of ongoing, very intentional interaction between researchers, those who are going to use the results of research, sometimes called the audience, but they're really much, much more than that, and the communities being studied. So that kind of ongoing interaction is what I think of as co-creation. Now, what, why is it important? Because it certainly sounds hard and it is hard to do. So why is it important to do? From my perspective, it's crucial to do because the problems that we're all working on, whether around you know, deep structural inequality Or, you know, how to deliver services in fully respectful and effective ways, how to allocate public resources, all of those sorts of really difficult questions require a set of knowledge that goes so far beyond what researchers hold as expert knowledge. So it requires the knowledge of the policymakers who know about how social choices are made and what the kind of political space is for action. Um, It requires the knowledge of practitioners who are implementing programs and know how things work or don't in the real world. And it requires really in a very important way, the knowledge that's held by people for whom the system is failing. So we often talk about sort of target communities or um, the, the people who are studied, but they are often the ones who can really see the underlying power structures because they experience the results of them. They know what their own assets are, as well as their own, the, the problems they experience. And they can tell us what meaningful change would mean for them, and so all those kinds of, you know, sources of knowledge are really needed to move ahead on the incredibly challenging um, issues that that I think many researchers are deeply committed to making a contribution to, to addressing. <laughs>
0: I guess it's really interesting when you start to talk about co-creating with such diverse groups of people. Um, You know, a lot of the work that you're doing at ID Insight is working with, you know, um, people experiencing huge inequalities, people living in, you know, rural, low to middle income countries, people, you know, with mental health problems in in cities, whatever it might be. Um, It strikes me that the worlds these people inhabit you know, the public, the audience who are affected on the ground, but also researchers and practitioners and policymakers, those are very different worlds. And those groups have very different priorities and and timescales that they need to work to. How do you think we can reconcile those competing demands so that we can actually do co-creation in the first place?
1: Yeah, great question. And I do not claim to have all the answers or even the large majority of answers. One of the things that I think is so exciting about this agenda is that there's so much learning that needs to be done and lots of experimentation by different groups. I would say, and I may be kind of unpopular among this crowd for saying so, but I think that the fundamental point is that researchers and evaluators, we are the ones who need to accommodate to others to make our work as meaningful as it can be that we may perceive for professional or other reasons that we have kind of needs to, for example, use the absolutely most rigorous novel methods or to, um, you know, have the time and space to um, do research that will be published in academic journals. But in my view, the most exciting and important research and evaluation work is that which deeply serves both the communities that we are trying to uh, work in to, to benefit and the direct decision makers. And often, I think, as your question suggested, that that means that we accommodate to them, to their, um, in the case of the, the policymakers or the program managers We accommodate to their budgets, their timetables, the kinds of information needs that that they have. We at ID Insight are like, that's our kind of main reason for being and way of working is to provide kind of tailored decision support for decision makers in funding agencies, in NGOs, and in government. And to do that, we have to work within their operating environment and be very responsive to their own needs and and levels of um, ability to to put in time and their own understanding of how to interpret uh, analytic work. I think it's a for us it's it's a frontier to figure out how to connect more deeply to the communities that we are trying to. Um, serve in a in a broad way. One of the ways we do that is when we are engaged in data collection that we often will do the kind of formative qualitative work in advance of um, the more quantitative broad scale data collection. But there are even deeper ways that other groups have found to engage communities in identifying what are the priority questions to to ask and to have an ongoing role in the data collection itself. So we are also learning from other other groups that are a little more advanced on that. But the bottom line is that it's really incumbent on the evaluators, on the researchers, on probably the community in, you know, the, the who are attending the EIS summit. It's incumbent upon us to accommodate others Rather than to kind of, as you were saying, like reconcile
0: our our needs. At least that's my view. Yeah, I get I get where you are coming from with that. I often hear from researchers who are very frustrated that their evidence isn't used by policymakers, or that policymakers or you know politicians just have no interest at all in their area of research. What what advice would you give to researchers? In how they adapt the way they work so that that changes?
1: Yes, what a great question. There's certainly a lot of experience, and I think that what we have learned at ID Insight, and we're not alone in this, is that uh, deep contextual knowledge and strong relationships with the members of the policy community is one of the factors that's, really a driver of whether our work will be both responsive to their needs and seen as trustworthy and really is trust is such a crucial part of the picture here and i think it's one that we don't maybe talk about quite enough is how can we systematically build relationships of trust because of course your work is is just not going to be seen as something that others can depend on if they don't fundamentally trust you and the organization you're you're working with
0: I'm interested in first of all building trust with the policy making community if you're a researcher I think there's a there's a different conversation to be had maybe about how you build trust with grassroots organizations so you can gain access to communities to be able to do your research in the first place but you know when political administrations change so frequently is it possible to build trust with the people who are making policy over a, you know, 30-year research career so that you can actually get your evidence to the people who need it.
1: I've been thinking a lot about sort of how to break trust down into things that we can actually work on in a very intentional and systematic way and one of the frameworks that other, you know, that academics have come up with over the years that I think has is quite helpful for my own thinking is that trust is a function of three core elements. So one is that people believe that you know what you're doing, that you're competent. The second is that people believe that you're, you have high integrity and that you are honest. And the third is that people believe that you are acting in their interests, that, that you have their interest at heart. And those, I think, are very, they're quite separable, and I think that they give us an agenda for trust building, whether it's with an individual at a point in time, or with a government agency over time, or a community organization, or individual members of the community. Something I think that those three things are, are important to hold in mind. And it's pretty clear to me, I'd be interested in others' views, but... It's pretty clear to me that we, in the research and evaluation community, have significantly emphasized the first two of those elements and haven't really worked as hard on the third. So what I mean by that is that we spend a lot of effort um, demonstrating, reinforcing our own competence. You know, we have peer review. We have various kinds of, you know, required training. Um, you go to any uh, seminar, and what you see is people demonstrating and getting reinforcement or questions about their competence. Do they know what they're doing? So we're we've sort of got that covered. Um, the second around integrity. There's been a lot of work done around research transparency, reproducibility, and other, you know, um, kind of uh, being transparent about who's funding you so people know whether there's conflict of interest. More work to do on that score, I think, but it's on our minds that we need to always show that we are being honest and um, working with high integrity and i think research ethics also plays into that and the you know institutional review boards and other structures that kind of reinforce integrity and ethical practices but then then we come to the question of whether we are consistently thinking about and demonstrating that we have the interests of others at heart and you know that That's a, a, I think, challenging space for many researchers and evaluators to lean into because we're so trained to think about the importance of demonstrating objectivity and lack of bias. And so finding ways to think about, well, whose, whose interests are we really working in service of and how can we show that? Um, I think that's just a really rich agenda to talk about, to think about. I think it links very, very strongly to who is doing the research, because people are much more likely to believe that people who are like them, who come from their own lived experience, are going to not just have the knowledge, but have their interests at heart.
0: So tell us, why should people come along to your talk at the conference in a few days' time? Well,
1: uh, people should come because I do think that this is one of the most exciting, frontier, important areas to be working on as a community, and we have a lot to learn from each other. So I am not going to come with any magic solutions about what co-creation should, must look like or you know, how it can be used as a means of building trust in all of its dimensions. But I think I'll put forth some interesting ideas that give people something to chew on. And we are collectively in a, a battle, a long-term fight, which we are not necessarily winning right now, to bring reason evidence, representative data into the service of positive social impact of collective progress. And, you know, we're, we're not winning right now. Um, and I think we need to examine some of our practices. So I'm hoping that my, you know, contribution can help people Um, think about whether co-creation and trust building is one of the ways in which we can move forward.
0: Can you say a bit more about why we're not winning and what the powers are that are preventing science and evidence from forging our future?
1: The kind of holding of and reification of expert knowledge and the remoteness of the expert class from the people for whom systems are failing is one of the reasons that we are, that the kind of legitimacy of research findings and of expertise more generally can be undermined and often is undermined. And then related to that, I think that there are clearly um, kind of malevolent political interests that use that as a wedge to permit them to hold on to the power that comes with not having in the room and visible voices of people who are deeply affected by policies and data, the data we bring is one of the core ways that those voices come into the room of policymaking.